Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, remembering RFK's impact in central Brooklyn 50 years after his assassination, breaking down the recent Supreme Court decision on cake, and the Northside Festival begins Wednesday. We'll get a taste and a song. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Brian Vines, filling in for Ashley Ford, joined by the show producer, Mr. Ross Tuttle. Hey, Ross. Hi, Brian. How you doing? Glad to have you here. Glad to have you here. Well, I do what I can. So we're going to talk today about whose cake you can decline to make. That's right. And I want to talk quickly about what day it is today. What day it is today. Well, you know, there's always these days, right? Everything is a day, like take your kid to work day, right. national hat day, or even fruitcake toss day. Did you know there's a fruitcake toss where day? Where are they tossing the fruitcakes I have cakes no idea where to. they fr- toss the fruitcakes <laughs> to. But, so today isn't so trivial. No offense to the fruitcakes. Huh. It's Worldwide Environment Day. Oh, that's a BFD. Yeah, Worldwide Environment. But Earth Day is like in April. Earth Day is in April. Worldwide Environment Day is today for some reason. I saw you had your cup here earlier. I'm sorry we don't have the prop, the one with the straw, Uh the non-disposable straw. Well, we made a decision on the fourth floor last week that we would not have any more disposable plastic straws. So slowly but surely, all of the Brick TV folks are getting on the reusable straw train. So it's a good day to commemorate that. Exactly. Right. Well, I'm happy about that. Also, you know, in the latest news of that whale that died in... Thailand for eating 18 pounds of plastic. Disgusting. Yeah. I don't know if it was straws, maybe plastic bags. Yeah, yeah. It was like that video with that turtle getting the straw pulled out of. Remember that video? Let that stick in your brain the next time you want to just toss away something. Right. So that's today. Yeah. Tomorrow. Well, National is, Donut Day? No, not National Donut Day. But <laughs> no, this the, is much more serious. So that's today. Wednesday is the anniversary of RFK's assassination. So we're going to talk about RFK and the place we live right here in Brooklyn. People may not remember that he was a senator from New York when he was actually killed on June 6th in 1968 out in Los Angeles. He lived in Manhattan, but he made a huge imprint right here in Brooklyn. Right. There's a bust of him near Borough Hall, and his legacy lives on in many ways, especially at Restoration Plaza, Restoration Corporation, one of the oldest community organizations, community organizing operations in the country. That's right. And to continue that legacy started back in the 60s. We're going to talk about that, and we've got Colvin Granham, the president and CEO of Restoration Corporation, on the phone. Welcome back to 112BK, sir. Hi, how are you? We're doing phenomenal. Thanks so much for joining us today. And Ross was just talking about that statue of RFK that's near Borough Hall, but we learned that there's actually a bust of him right outside your office. Yes, there is. Yes, we uh, have it prominently displayed, and uh, it helps us, you know, sharpen our remembrance of Senator Kennedy and the vision that he helped implement here in Brooklyn, and which was picked up across the country. Can you, can you talk to us, Mr. Granham, about that vision and about his visit to Brooklyn in 1967, which was also, I guess, the year of the founding of Restoration Corporation? Yeah, well, he actually came to Brooklyn prior to 1967 and met with community residents in a public school here, and they spoke to him about the conditions that they were facing during that time, well, there was redlining. Redlining was a disinvestment practice that focused on not making loans in places where African Americans lived. 
African Americans and other people of color. So in the middle 60s or the mid 60s, there was a lot of abandoned housing, a lot of housing in disrepair. The commercial quarters had been abandoned. And so there was a lot of devastation and neglect. Uh, Schools were poorer than they are now. And people were angry. And and they had a meeting with Senator Kennedy, and out of that came uh, the vision for Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation, which is a comprehensive community development corporation. And uh, we were founded in May of 1967, and a lot of what we did was rebuild the housing infrastructure of Bedford-Stuyvesant during the 1960s, late 1960s and early 1970s. So, Mr. Granham, you spoke about that anger. You know, people from Bedside have never been afraid to speak truth to power, and they sort of challenged the senator to walk the walk instead of just coming in and doing politician speak. So how did he deliver on that call to action? Well, as I mentioned, um, as I mentioned, I was going to, I was, I hesitate because there's a classic line that is attributed to a woman by the name of Elsie Richardson, who's now deceased, which is that um, something to the effect that you know, the community residents had been studied to death and now was a time for action. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, so the creation of Bethesda Stuyvesant Restoration was one of the things mm-hmm. that came out of that meeting, and it's probably the most enduring thing because it's the only thing that's left. Yeah. And um, during, you know, since 1967, we've created more than 2,500 units of housing. We've placed close to 23,000 people in jobs. Uh, our restoration plaza uh, is the venue uh, for more than 1.5 million visits a year. You know, we have a theater and uh, arts and culture component. We um, have lots of social services here. And it was supermarket, a proof of concept lots. for something that spread all across the nation. Well, that's right. There are more than 3,000 community development corporations across the nation which do work quite similar to what we do. I think the thing that resonates with me most about Senator Kennedy is that his vision of fighting poverty was not limited to creating housing. It wasn't limited to placing people in jobs. He really was focused on creating healthy communities. So that included health centers, arts and culture, green spaces. He knew what it was like to have a fully developed and mature community that was supportive of the residents in many ways. Mm-hmm. And that's what he sought to bring to, uh, to Bedford-Stuyvesant and, and, and what he sought to sort of operationalize across the nation. He was very instrumental in, in uh, having the federal government fund the community development corporations. And so um, his legacy lives on, not just in central Brooklyn, but, uh, you know, across the nation. We're fortunate that his son, Robert Kennedy Jr., is uh, a member of our board, and we're also fortunate that this year, on October 9th, we'll be honoring one of Senator Kennedy's daughters, um, Carrie Kennedy. Uh, So, you know, we've been fortunate to maintain relationship with the family. So if you could just for a second 
We know we've made a lot of progress since 1967, but we can only imagine what kind of career and bridge building would have happened if RFK would have gotten to fulfill his potential. He was really seen as the hope of bringing together black America and white America at that time. Well said. I mean, because he not just—he didn't just tour Bibbis-Babbison, but he toured Appalachia. Yeah. In the photos of those tours were compelling evidence that, uh, you know, that low-income black folk and white folks and Hispanic folks had more in common than they had uh, that separates them. And perhaps that's why he was killed. Uh, because that uh, try you know mending that bridge to bring together these powerful constituencies might have been too much for some of the powers that be. Um, one of the things that you know was compelling about him also is that his eloquence um, uh, and his insightfulness, his ability to bring those to you know to to articulate what he saw and what he thought in ways that moved people made him, you know, quite extraordinary. So, you know, the community development field had some setbacks because not everybody was um, a supporter. Not all the elected officials saw it as being something valuable. We know that Ronald Reagan and conducted uh, cutbacks right. on community development, and one wonders whether if Kennedy, Robert Kennedy had lived and whether the, mo- whether the movement yeah. would have had uh, even greater momentum well, over time than I'm, over time. Yeah, well, one thing that we don't have to wonder about is the importance of restoration in central Brooklyn and across the nation as a model. So we thank you for taking the time to call in today and talk about RFK and his legacy and the work that's happening every day over at Restoration. Thanks for well, joining thank us Well, thank you today. for telling the story of Robert Kennedy. Absolutely. And uh, he's an inspiral, inspirational leader for, for, for generations. And so is Colvin Granham. Thanks for joining thank, thank us, you. sir. All right. Bye-bye. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with a Salon reporter about recent Supreme Court activity, including what the cake decision means for laws outlawing discrimination. Don't go away. On Monday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in the case of a Colorado cake maker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, citing his religious freedom. Now, reaction was swift on the Twitter sphere, with many angry at what seemed to open the door to any kind of discrimination, as long as you say it's because of what your God tells you. But maybe it's not so clear-cut. To help us get a better understanding of this decision, what it might mean for the law of the land and other court decisions, we're joined by Amanda Marcotte, politics writer for Salon. Welcome to 112BK, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the world is watching, including us watching you discussing this. This story has been going on since 2012, and it's still got legs. 
Yeah, and it, it's part of a larger strategy that is spearheaded by a group called Alliance Defending Freedom, and they are a religious right group that has really been thinking broadly about how to use religious freedom as a way to carve out all sorts of exemptions to civil rights law, right. not just for gay rights, but also for women's rights, and some fear for even, you know, going all the way back to the 60s and the Civil Rights Act and things like that. Yeah, as far back as the 60s, but every time this case is mentioned, it's also in the same breath with the Hobby Lobby decision and all of these other sort of tests and prodding to see just how far religious exemptions and that First Amendment tie-in will get folks on the not right. Yeah, and I think, you know, the Hobby Lobby case is interesting because they got a, like, a much better decision in that case for themselves, which is they were able to get a carve-out for businesses to not have to obey very basic regulations, health care regulations that the government had passed requiring mm. health care plans to cover contraception. Um, they still kind of narrowly decided that one. More, you know, large corporations still can't do that. But this particular case, the Masterpiece case, is one where it is almost meaningless in terms of advancing this goal. Right. So, in the same breath, it's almost meaningless. It's, they're definitely going to have to debate this again at some other time. But the decision came down 7 to 2 with uh, Justice Kennedy writing the majority decision. Why should people not think, oh, no, we've lost Kennedy, who's been such a supporter before of LGBTQ and other rights in the rulings? Why isn't this a signal that we've lost Kennedy? Well, when you actually read the decision, I think the first thing that is clear is that Justice Kennedy does not want to rule in favor of discriminating against LGBT people and businesses and in public accommodations. He right. realizes not only is that offensive just to him personally, but also, I think, to, you know, a longstanding precedent that says public accommodations, businesses that are open to the public should serve people equally, and certainly anyone in a protected class, and in Colorado, LGBT people are a protected class. Mm -hmm. So he knows all these things. He also didn't want to completely, like, invalidate this religious freedom argument, so instead he punted. And ultimately, he ruled in favor of the baker, but he did so by saying that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission right. argued that they argued their case in a way that he found unpleasant, that they were too hostile to the they baker's were religious— too hard against the baker, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And Alana Kagan wrote a concurring opinion where she said, you know, you could have made— the same ruling without necessarily using inflammatory language about right. the Baker's religious beliefs. It's kind of like that Trump thing, where it's like, oh, I said this ban, divorce my Twitter from what I say about the law kind of thing, but on the reverse side for these folks, I guess. Yeah, it was a really classic example of using a process argument to sort of avoid the issue. And I found it—personally, I find it really frustrating, because, as we know, there are multiple cases just like this percolating through the other courts. Yeah. So if Kennedy wanted to avoid the issue, all he did was it prolong the problem. Well, in the Twitter sphere that I talked about earlier, people are sort of going hard on that co commission in Colorado saying, you guys have messed this up for everyone. But it seemed that they made some pretty valid points, including religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history. From my understanding of history, that's not inaccurate. No, it was a factual argument. And even when Kennedy quotes some of the commissioner's comments, he does so in a way that really I feel is in bad faith, that mm -hmm. he distorted 
what the commissioner was saying when he yeah. said that religion has been used in the past to justify the Holocaust and slavery, which is factually true. And then he said, you know, he, he did sort of make a judgment about how he felt it was wrong to use religion to justify bigotry. To my mind, that's not an anti-religious argument. To my mind, that's an argument that says you shouldn't degrade religion by using it to justify bigotry. Right. So I feel like Kennedy was reaching. Yeah. So do you think a precedent has been set here with this decision, even though it was, by all accounts, a punt? <laughs> no. I don't think a precedent has been set. I think Kennedy went out of his way to avoid setting a precedent. Yeah. And if anything, if you read Alana Kagan's concurring opinion, she actually kind of lays out a roadmap for how future commission, civil rights should commissions should happen. deal with this, yeah. which is to say that they should kind of bend over backwards to be super respectful to the person making the religious argument yeah. while also ruling against them. So I read uh, in one of these papers that came out of Denver an interview with the folks on the other side of this who never wanted to make it personal against Masterpiece. And they were like, it's about the policy, not about the people. And we just picked this guy because our wedding coordinator said they're the closest venue to the place and they make good cakes. So it wasn't about them. But what do you think other couples are thinking looking at this sort of ruling and the way that they're going to be treated, not just in Colorado? I have friends personally who are getting married in Michigan and Mackinac Island, and a person refused to make their cake because they're gay. And that's where I think this is still a very troubling decision, because even though legally it's narrow, culturally these things matter. And I think that a lot of people on the right are taking this as permission to keep pressing the point and mm -hmm. to keep discriminating. And in fact, maybe even an invitation to do it more, because they can create more test cases right. to take to the court. And that, I think, creates a cultural intimidation factor for LGBT couples, yeah. you know, same-sex couples. And it's frustrating because so many of these arguments are made in bad faith. The, 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 the baker in this case says, you know, he was trying to make it a religious thing, saying, well, you know, this is a religious ceremony, not... And I'm like, do you, do you, dude, did you ask every straight couple who came in if they were getting married by a priest? I don't think so, right. you know? Yeah what the nature of their relationship would be after the way they define marriage. What do you think about the cultural divide, almost, that this exposes? There's one side that is into the religious and this man's right, but there's another sort of schism that happens in the LGBTQ plus community, where it's like, okay, you're arguing about a cake and who's going to make it, when there's so many other more prescient issues for some factions of the LGBTQ plus community, where like, fine, go get your cake made somewhere else. We don't want to give our good gay dollars to some guy who would not like to make a cake for us. Well, I think that argument misses the point in a couple of ways, especially if you go back and you read the original story of what happened to the couple that went into Masterpiece Cake Shop. They didn't give the guy their money, I'll tell you that. But he humiliated them in public. Yeah. You know, he made them feel small and bad, which he didn't need to do. That's the first thing I would say. And, and, and you're setting a trap for every same-sex couple that is just trying to go about their day right. with this sort of thing. The other thing I would say is, if you look at the long precedent of this kind of public accommodation litigation, what you'll see is that, yes, it's often things like you know, that sitting seem in trivial. Yeah, whether you can eat lunch at this place, whether you can, you know, use this water fountain. Frankly, right. you know, the stuff from the '60s. It goes all the way back to a case called Piggy Park in the '60s, where, 
you know, black customers were not allowed to eat in the main dining room, and they sued over that and won. And I think that, you know, I think we understand now from a historical distance why that was an important decision, and I hope that we can kind of see to, to why that is important now. So one other thing that's sort of in our feeds lately is another decision that's not really a decision about a young woman who uh, was an undocumented immigrant who was made a decision to have an abortion and how the government and the Trump administration interceded in her process. It's a really frustrating case. So Jane Doe, uh, who was defended by the ACLU, um, petitioned to get an abortion, which is her right, and the Trump administration basically held her hostage because she was an asylum seeker being held in a detention center. And they tried to use the fact of her immigration status as a a way to deprive her of her abortion or at least stall it until it was too late to get a medically safe abortion. So I think they lost. The ACLU was able to get this girl her abortion. But the problem is the Supreme Court decided to rule— that the case was irrelevant since she'd already gotten her abortion. They punted right. again. Kick the can down the road for someone else. <laughs> and that's frustrating because yeah. there are many girls in detention centers that need the service. Yeah. And in fact, there are a lot of young women that are coming from Central America to the United States to escape like gang violence and other kind of political violence. But a lot of them are pregnant, sometimes by rape. Right. And they are also seeking access to abortion, which is often hard to get in Central America. (laughs) And so this is a problem that's not going away. And I really, really wish the Supreme Court would just suck it up, do the right thing, and let these girls be free. Yeah. It's so frustrating. They want to take care of the babies, but they lock the moms up. But your child, like, you can't have it both ways. Like, you don't want anchor babies, but at the same time, you won't let a woman petition for the right to have an abortion if she (laughs) wants to. So you're going to protect the baby but punish the mom unless they come here and have the baby and then that's bad. So it's like, get your shit together, people. They just just hate women (laughs) and immigrants. And and a woman immigrant, what's worse than that? Bad ombre, I guess, is the only thing worse than a woman who would come here. Separate them from their children or make them have their children or not abort. And the thing, I think, to remember in this is they're all minors, too. Yeah. They're all minors. Yeah. Like that's so. why they're, oh, whatever. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but we'll continue to look for these developments and check out your stuff on Salon. Thanks for being here, Amanda. Thank you. Northside Festival celebrates 10 years this year. Based in Brooklyn, it's apparently New York City's oldest music and innovation festival. Is that because it's the city's only music and innovation festival? In any case, it's five days of more musical acts than we can count, and speakers on topics at the intersection of art and technology. But today, we're going to talk about the music. And joining us is one of the artists who will be performing. He's Bushwick-based singer-songwriter Drew Cutler. Welcome to 112BK, sir. Hey. Happy to have you in the studio again. Yeah, it's nice to see you again. And I'm sure they're happy to have you at Northside again. What is this number? Three. Three years in. Why are you still going back? I know, right? Why why would you continue to do this thing? (laughs) Well, you know, look, it's it's 300 bands. There's over 150 speakers. And for a musician, um, it's a fantastic place to 
see what other folks are doing, you know, networking, getting in touch with other bands. To me, being a musician in Brooklyn is really about a larger community. So meeting people after their show, shaking their hands, you know, talking about where they're at, what they're playing. This is a huge part of continuing your own career, too. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to get in a hot, sweaty van yep. going to some little festival somewhere. Right. And I've done a bunch. Like, we were at South By this year. I was at the Florida Music Fest. So I've been at plenty of fests. So this is cool that it's, it's right in your backyard. You can sleep in your own bed. So you did South By. You were down in Florida. How does a Brooklyn Music and Innovation Fest compare to going to those other places? And what's the vibe like? South By is overwhelming. You know, yeah. it's, it's really hard to, it's, it's hard to digest. It's hard to stand out. Um, what I really loved about Northside is that when you meet someone, whether it be at a talk, at a bar, at a venue, um, nine times out of ten they're located in, in New York someplace. You know, so it's not just a relationship where someone might be flying back overseas and disappear mm -hmm. from your life. You really can meet them for coffee. You know, yeah. you really can form a real relationship and yeah. play with their band or work with them in marketing or hire them to do PR. Like, you really can actually collaborate. And you can book them at Unit J. Yeah. We talked about that last time we were we here did. too. So, um, if for anyone that hasn't hasn't asked questions about it or don't know what it is, bottom line, I, I live in this big warehouse in Bushwick that we converted into a live music space over the last five years, yeah. and we host shows for up to 120 folks. So we pack them in and we we play a couple of shows a month and. The festival this year, what we're doing is we've taken 20 bands and we put them on two stages uh, for one day. So this is kind of our little contribution to the Greater Northside Fest. Some of our favorite acts, um, amazing talent, go going all the way from singer, female solo songwriters, all the way to electronic musicians and all types of stuff. Yeah. So full day of music. So, Drew, you are living the dream. you got that factory that you made into this cool music space. But a lot of folks that we know are getting priced out and just trying to deal with that artist life and just getting on the train to get to a gig, let alone paying your rent here. So do you feel that pressure? Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, we're lucky in that we live far enough out and on a weird gotcha. enough street <laughs> that I don't, I don't foresee us having to move any time soon but you know like I'm not gonna lie we have six roommates you yeah. know like so this is what it takes if you want a huge space where you can make art and music or paint or draw or act or shoot a film you make sacrifices you know and ours is just a lot of dirty dishes a lot of dirty dishes <laughs> six roommates in but again living the dream speaking of the dream was this song that you're gonna perform for us crafted in the unit J yeah, I, I'm going to play a song off my new record. The song's called Brain Place. It was written over the last year and definitely at Unit J. Uh, can I tell you a little bit about it? What, it. Actually, my, my question to you would be like, huh. you hear Brain Place, what do you think the song might be about? <laughs> All good things. All good things. Depending on whose brain it comes from. If right. it comes from your brain, it might be a little... <laughs> Wabi-sabi. <laughs> I feel like you, know, like you guys work in media, and so it's, it's, it's the, the last couple of years, I feel like the technology and life and the Internet, and, and you walk down the street, someone has a phone in their hand. They're not even looking up anymore. We're in this world where people are just being sort of sucked into this digital landscape, which is, it's, it could be overwhelming. Yeah. You know, it, could be, it could be downright frustrating and, and angry and just, like, not a healthy place. Long story short, you know, I, we all need a, a sort of sacred place to go. Mm. And it could be meditating, it could be jogging, it could be just spending some time cutting your daughter's hair, like whatever it is for you, you know what I mean? Uh, and so Brain Place is about us really finding that. Mm. 
something shiny and diamond and white. Like a dot on a line, a plot on a graph, every decision connected and packed. Your brain plays just float away, float away to your brain plays. All the media screens, they spit in the fire. Turn profit from popular So that's the show. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow we'll be back with the Democratic challenger for New York's 9th Congressional District seat, Adam Bunkadeco. Hope you can join us. Bye now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown. Shireen Barghi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.